Hello, and welcome to the Vote Her podcast, because when you vote, good things can happen. I'm Mara Davis, and I am so happy to be recording this podcast right now. And I am Jen Jordan, and my pronouns are she and ma'am. Well, Senator, it is good to have you back. Been getting a lot of feedback from our loyal following of about five or six people. (laughs) They've all been wondering what's taken a minute to do a new episode. And that's because you've been busy legislating. So we started session and it's interesting because session's like really slow at first, but also busy. Because you're kind of getting used to the flow of things and you have all these meetings and kind of organizational things you have to take care of. And then you're getting ready, you know, like I've got like 10 bills that I'm about to drop that I've had to get ready and to get drafted and make sure they're right. Um, So it's been a lot. And we've also been working on the state budget, which is like the most important thing that we do every year. All right. You Go back into session. You go back to the Capitol building. This is right after January 6th, the insurrection and the leading up to the inauguration when the security is just increased, you know, tremendously nationwide. Can you paint a picture of what it was like at the Georgia State Capitol? Yeah, it was completely different. So usually the Capitol is a very open environment. And in fact, the first year I was there was the first time they actually used swipe cards before If you just had on a badge that said you were a senator or a rep, they just let you through. So it hasn't been that long since they've actually started paying attention to security. And this year was just completely different. I mean, there are roads that were shut down so people couldn't get near the Capitol. There are people today still out there with long guns and um, obviously in military fatigues. And so... You know, the threats are real because let's be clear, they wouldn't be out there unless they were really worried about something. That is wild. Now you have to be COVID tested twice a week. Yeah. So the best news is the greatest news is that at least at the state Senate level, which I'm a part of, they're taking it very seriously. We're doing the surveillance testing that Georgia Tech does, which is amazing, by the way. And I wish, I think APS is going to do this as well. We spit in a cup twice a week and they're able to pick it up. And if you happen to have it, you know, they immediately quarantine you. And the whole idea is to try to identify it before that person can really be around anybody else. And it's, it's worked beautifully at the state Senate. All right. Two things I want to pivot off of that. First is you introduced, well, you gave a speech about prioritizing vaccinations for teachers. Yeah. Look, there has been this big push for face-to-face teaching. And I think that, you know, you're a mom, I'm a mom. I think it is in the best interest of kids. But if we're going to push teachers back into the classroom, if we're going to make them do that, then we have to make sure it is the the safest place possible for them. And so really my argument was just to kind of bump them up to the highest level so that they can get in line. I understand that that there is a supply issue right now, um, but the Biden administration has been very clear about trying to up that supply. We just got news that Johnson & Johnson is going to get clearance for their new vaccine. So it's really a matter of just getting people kind of in line so that they can get the vaccination. And also there have been parts of the state where 
you know, seniors or people in that 1A priority class have not wanted to get the vaccine. So it makes sense to me that then if the 1A folks aren't taking advantage of it or don't want to at this point in time, then why wouldn't you open it up to teachers who really are putting their life on the line every day? Well, you had several, I think it was, what, 11 school superintendents um, supporting this, writing a letter to Governor Kemp, you pushing Governor Kemp. And then there was some pushback from him and his office. He said in an interview this was playing pandemic politics. And then his uh, chief of staff, Cody Hall, put out some sort of snarky response, which I read as like, thanks, it's a nice try, but it's none of your business kind of so thing. what's interesting about the governor and his comm staff is that any time that you criticize or push or really try to say this is what the policy should be, they always call politics on you. This is pandemic politics at its best right here. But I, I really don't have time for politics right now, nor does Dr. Toomey. She's tried to stay out of the fray on all of that. Governor Brian Kemp responding to critics who want him to prioritize teachers for COVID-19 vaccines in Georgia. And so if that's what they want to say, that's fine. But let me be clear that there are teachers in this state who are having to show up for face-to-face teaching that are not being protected. And so if it's political to try to advocate for those teachers, then call me political all day long. I love it when you tell people, let me be clear. Yeah, that's a little bit of a verbal tick for me. I love it. I love when you're clear and you've made yourself very clear on that. So now we got that done. Now let's talk about how we had Representative David Clark from Buford who declined to take the COVID test at the um, State House and got escorted out. Speaker David Ralston decided, mm-mm, this isn't going to happen. And I, of course, was texting you like, oh, was this dramatic? What happened? Because this seems just so crazy to me. I was so surprised that it went down the way it did because that is very dramatic to have a legislator escorted physically out of the chamber. But I think that the speaker was wanting to make it very, very clear that you can't endanger the lives of the other legislatures just because you want to. And so this gentleman refused to basically just spit in a cup. I mean, most people want this kind of testing, right? Because they don't want to endanger other people. And he was refusing to do it. But the good news is, is that I think he's back. And I think he's uh, following orders uh, from the speaker now. Well, his reaction was, I mean, again, well, take a listen. Well, all I know is, is I've gone, if everybody goes to get two tests a week, you can't just go get them. I mean, it's great that, that you can get it, but not everybody can just go get two tests a week. Um, and if they can provide that type of one, then let's do it. But I don't see that protocol out there. So let's get the teachers and the first responders. And then I'll be glad. Everybody's being canceled and my views and this and that. And it's almost like what he said didn't really make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, and 
yeah, you just kind of almost got to leave it there because it was so ridiculous. Um, the comparison that that he was making, trying to make himself some kind of martyr. It was unbelievable. Really, yeah. he was just throwing a man fit. But I felt that uh, Speaker Ralston spoke with a lot of conviction and passion. I mean, obviously, this is a man who is really affected by this and has dealt with with a lot of heartbreak and loss through this COVID situation. You know, this this building belongs to the people of Georgia. Uh, and so I feel an obligation not only to, this is not just about members uh, when we do the testing, for example. This is about uh, staff. This is about the media. This is about the members of the public that still come here, uh, even in a pandemic, uh, and I think they have a, a, a right to expect that we're doing everything we possibly can to keep uh, everybody here healthy and well, uh, because it's, uh, it is a challenge. I know there are members who, uh, who feel some discomfort in being here, uh, and, um, um, and I, I, I recognize and appreciate that. You know, I think a lot of them have. I mean, especially in these smaller communities, they've lost friends. They've lost, you know, people that they've gone to church with for decades. It has hit small town Georgia really, really hard. And so I think that may be part of the reason that people are taking it a lot more seriously, because it isn't just something people are talking about out there. I mean, they've actually lost loved ones. All right. Another thing that's made some Georgia news inside the state house, and it's, uh, of course, got national news coverage, is this uh, needing two photocopies of your driver's license, this bill that was introduced about absentee ballots. Can we talk a little bit about some of the foolery that's happening around this? Yeah. I mean, I think the whole idea is that because Democrats won this year, and a lot of it was attributable to absentee ballots, which people took advantage of because we're in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, there wasn't anything kind of secret about this, right? Not at all. And so because of that, you're getting this real knee-jerk reaction to basically say, well, we've got, we've got to shut that down. And so we're seeing kind of these legislative kind of initiatives come through that are just going to make it harder for people to actually you know, have their absentee ballot counted. And the whole idea that people just have copy machines in their houses. This was kind of my first thought when that was introduced. I thought, this actually hurts Republicans, people in rural areas, people who rely on that absentee ballots. You've said it over and over again that the absentee ballot was set up to help Republicans. And I just, this this seems crazy to me. Does this have any chance in going through? You know, I think we're going to see something, and we should. The, the system that's been in place has had major issues. And, and part of it is verifying that people are who they are with just a signature match. But that was the system that Republicans put in place. And so while at the same time they were urging that we had to have photo ID for in-person voting, they said, oh, no, 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 you don't have to have it for absentee voters because at the time they viewed that as politically good for them. And so now we're just seeing it kind of come back. But you're right. 
This year was unusual in terms of the voters and how they voted because it was a pandemic. I mean, some of these efforts actually may be like cutting off your nose to spite your face. Well, that's kind of what I think. So I want to get to this Stop Stacy initiative, which was just announced as far as it's a, you know, anti Stacey Abrams campaign that's been put together by someone who worked on Kelly Leffler's team, worked for Governor Kemp, Stephen Lawson. Yeah, I think it's all the Kemp allies and people that have worked for him politically through the years. And I think it's an independent committee or a PAC, something like that. And the whole idea is that they're going to get out there and message against Stacey Abrams in the run-up to the gubernatorial in 22. All right. So a couple thoughts on that. Number one, even if they make these absentee voting laws a little bit harder, you can't stop a freight train. You're not going to be able to stop Fair Fight. You can't stop Black Voters Matter. You're not going to stop Latasha Brown. You're not going to stop all of these grassroots voting organizations. This is not something that happened overnight. This has been years and years and years in the making. So people People, I feel, are more empowered now. Like, you know, they're not all absentee. It was the early voting that really got them going. Look, it's it's one of these things where I have no idea who the marketing <laughs> genius was who came up with this Stop Stacy thing. <laughs> to be quite frank, it smacks of Stop the Steal to me. Yeah! And why anybody would want to kind of, you know, put a new entity kind of in the same plane and stop the steal. Highlight her name. Give her more attention. Well, and not only that, but it's so easy to use. It's like you can say, can't stop Stacy. <laughs> well, that, that's when I first saw it, I was like, stop. Stacy, right. <laughs> Like, stop everything. Stacy, like, break down. Have a time. It just didn't feel like so. So I think one thing that former President Trump, or I guess we call him President Trump, he will always be president unless, you know, he is. If he's impeached again, does he still go by president? So he won't be removed from office. So he'll he'll still be president forever. Yeah, he'll still be given the honor. But my point was, so Trump had a great way of marketing. He would come up with names for people, Sleepy Joe Biden and and uh, uh, Lazy Eye Chuck Todd. I forget what the Chuck Todd, what are, you know, the names for people. And it worked, but I don't know if it can work for other people. Well, look, you know, this, this Stop Stacy thing is brought to you by the same folks who spent $100 million of Kelly Leffler's money to basically deliver a big old loss for her. So we need to kind of take it with a little bit of grain of salt. But let's be clear. Let's be clear. They see Abrams as a threat, and they're going to do everything they can to try to undermine her and, and to really try to keep people from voting. Is she going to run? I mean, is it definite? No. Who knows? I mean, she's still thinking about it. And I think that actually may be real. She's got a pretty significant platform now and is is doing some pretty cool stuff even outside of holding office. So so I'm not sure. I All mean, right. that's the that's the big question. Wow. So could it be Senator Jen Jordan for governor? No, no. I Senator Jen is Senator Jen. We're we're good for now. Thanks. <laughs> uh, all right. 
But a lot of politicians will say no. And then it's like two months later. I, I, let me just ask you this. If you do run for governor, can your first announcement be on this podcast? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. All right. So also getting a lot of news is Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, and you know, I didn't want to give this so much coverage because I feel it's been just like, there's been way, way, way too much coverage of her. It's been everywhere. She's the new villain. And let's, let's be clear. She is a vile, rotten, garbage individual. On this podcast specifically, we've talked about her many times before anybody decided or learned that she was a crazy beast. And I feel like it's it's not really... I think she does need to be removed from the committees. Do you think she needs to be removed from Congress? I'm not even sure what the process is for that. Okay. I think people need to be a little bit careful because, look, folks voted for her. They right? did. People who have the franchise and have the ability to vote, they absolutely voted for her. I think probably the better thing to concentrate on is trying to recruit somebody to run against her in two years. But the issue with all of the attention she's been getting is that it's enabled her to raise a lot of money in a little bit of time from all over the country because she's kind of become the new, the person kind of taking the oxygen up in the room, the new kind of Trump person, Trump-like person. So we've got to be we got to be pretty, pretty careful here because, you know, I don't want to give her any oxygen. It's a tough thing. People have been asking me if I'm going to high Marjorie on Twitter like I did to Kelly Loeffler. Oh, I would. And my gut was like, well, I, I am not doing it for two reasons. One, I am scared shitless of her followers. Okay, that's the biggest reason. I wasn't as scared of Leffler because I knew it was some like expensive social media team and she was just such a novice that, and honestly, when I started that, I genuinely had questions. I wasn't trying to do a stunt or anything. But the other reason is what you said. It's giving her so much oxygen and so much more attention. She's already getting a lot of it. But I did want to kind of pivot off that into what she represents and how that led to the Capitol insurrection and QAnon and everything that goes along with it because there have been a lot of news reports, podcasts, television shows that have talked a lot about this movement that she's a part of. So everything that is happening isn't like, oh my God, how did this happen? It's been out there for everybody to see. Yeah, and I think that's what is a little bit disappointing because if anybody was actually paying attention, I mean, this has been out there for a long, all the videos, how she was, uh, she she thought that 9-11 didn't happen. I mean, just, just stuff that's just crazy. But they wanted right? her anyway. I mean, that's the thing is, so, so I mean, we talked to Charles Bethea about this from The New Yorker months ago. So I do want to dig into how people are being radicalized, especially here in Georgia. And so that leads us to our next guest. Our guest today is a reporter and podcaster from Atlanta's WABE. And she's put out a podcast called No Compromise with her partner, Chris Haxel from KCUR. And this is all about guns and America and extremism. And I learned so much. If you want to know how we got to where we 
are as far as the insurrection at the Capitol and how people have been radicalized online. Lisa is a real authority on this topic, and she's with us right now. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. How did you get the idea to do this podcast? Oh, um, I think I think we talk about it a little bit in the podcast, but I'm sure Senator Jordan will know who Jerry Henry is. He is a, a local gun rights activist for a much better established gun rights outfit here in Georgia that really has had a lot to do with with changing policy in the state. Jerry would, you know, I would call him up when there was a dude at the airport with an AR or something like that. He would always comment on my stories and we would, you know, meet up and I would ask him about, you know, what his legislative priorities were going to be for the year. And he would sort of hint at like, yeah, we don't do this or that. Like, we don't do the fear-mongering stuff. We don't do X, Y, Z. And I was interested in that. I mean, as a journalist, you're like, hmm, is there conflict happening amongst the gun rights activists? Tell me more. And I think like Senator Jordan, I had never really seen these guys before because when you're actually covering how laws are made, they don't come into play very often because they're not the ones who have been working on the bills, Georgia Carey, this other organization is. Anyway, so yeah, that that's that's what I did. And I, I looked them up and, and right away you can see that they're affiliated with other groups in other states and they all have really similar branding on their websites. And it just starts to look funky, which is catnip to journalists. Yeah, it's interesting because most organizations, especially organizations around issues, right, they try to engage with elected officials to change policy or to provide what their membership's view of something is or to work on a bill. But actually, this particular group that you were focused on in this podcast, they like to do the opposite. They actually think that it's it's you shouldn't talk to elected officials because really you shouldn't give any ground whatsoever. It is not a negotiation. It is not about changing a word in a statute or changing the law. I mean, it is, they want it all. And so if, if you're willing to negotiate or to back down in any way or compromise, then they come after you. Right. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think what what ended up being very eye-opening for both Chris and I was that this isn't just, you know, on a whim, someone's strategy. This is a thing that has been developed over decades and, you know, sort of came out of the same circles as as the John Birch Society and Christian Reconstructionism, which we talk a lot about in the podcast. It's one of those things where this is not, because specifically in Georgia, the Georgia chapter, they tried to make it look like it was some kind of grassroots you know, these are just everyday people who like guns. And God. Um, and God and all that. And, and you had this guy in his basement in Kennesaw making these videos every day. But it really was something much bigger. And they're all tied together. And even in terms of their social media, they would even have the same spelling errors or grammatical errors. So it was clearly kind of a top down being pushed down to each of the various state entities. And this is kind of scary. And what's fascinating about that stuff also is that, you know, 
as journalists, I think Chris and I were pretty early to this and we had been working on this story for a while. Obviously, other journalists caught on. But, you know, the the thing that was interesting to me was that it was the gun rights people. It was the community of people who really love the Second Amendment and firearms and stuff who, who had caught this stuff way earlier than anybody else. They were the ones doing those side-by-side comparisons of the posts. And so there, there was a lot of interesting material within the community itself. Well, there was one instance in the podcast, and, and one thing that comes up over and over again is how they really harass Republican lawmakers more than Democratic lawmakers. And there was one in particular, I think she was um, maybe the state senator from Missouri, and she had like retweeted an article. Um, they hated this woman, right? And the end, and... And she and, and was she, no fan she, of theirs. Yeah. Yeah. And, she, and you know, they were like at war with each other. And then, Lisa, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, right. This actually, Chris had interviewed this this woman, so I might not know the entire details. But yeah, the scene that you're talking about is basically where Chris confronts her because he had seen, you know, that she had reposted one of their website stories. And he was like, did you know this is the doors? And she was like, Oh, no, because, I mean, as we sort of lay out in the podcast, not only do they have these like specific branded gun rights groups, but they have a lot of other publications. I'm not sure what you would call them exactly. I think it's it's uh, there's a major proliferation of this on the Internet now where you can just sort of take the work of journalists and and rejigger it a little bit and reword it with your own spin and make a website that looks enough like news for people to repost it. No, and that's, as you said, this has been going on and kind of right under our noses the whole time. I mean, I remember in terms of of my experience with, with one of these groups, the the gentleman who was leading it here, Patrick Parsons, who is now Marjorie Taylor Greene's chief of staff in D.C., no one had even ever seen this guy. They had no clue who he was. But he would launch these attacks on Republicans that were relentless. I mean, hundreds of people calling social media outrage. And when they went back to their districts, they were getting harangued by their constituents because this guy was putting out all this information that wasn't true about Republicans who actually have a pretty significant Second Amendment record in terms of supporting gun rights. Absolutely. But of course, that in the specific formula of confrontational politics, which we talk about in the podcast, is that that's the whole point is being pro-Second Amendment actually makes you pretty vulnerable to them uh, if you're on the right, because that means you have something to prove about how pure your love of, of firearms is. Uh, and that's what they take advantage of. And I mean, I think you were saying earlier, you know, they go after they, they don't like working with people who don't do exactly what they say. The really the only kinds of politicians they're interested in working with at all and not just using as sort of, uh, you know, crash dummies, are, are people that they can own, people that they they fully have control over and have been with, you know, since the beginning of their career. And I think what's very interesting is that we see that champion for them 
very much in Marjorie Taylor Greene. So is that what we ended up with at the insurrection? I mean, look, you focus, you guys focus a lot in the Door brothers, and these are brothers that put up these Facebook videos, and a lot of people really connect to it. I mean, they're sort of wacky, like, rebels, and they sit there and they blast out talking points, and, you know, we love guns, and Share we love memes. God, and... Yep. and I feel like when I watched the insurrection, I was like, oh my God, did the Door brothers, were they there and did they organize this? Uh, we have no evidence of that. No, uh, we don't think they were there. Actually, for a, a pretty long period, I mean, we end the podcast by saying that the the Door brothers' mom and father had had become sick with COVID. And so they were, I don't know if this is why, but they weren't very active in the period when the podcast actually got released. And, you know, part of that is because of the pandemic and, you know, state legislatures kind of being all over the place. But we also suspected, or I did at least, that with Patrick Parsons, who seemed to be gone from the Georgia scene, you know, he he was clearly working with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, and when we heard the announcement that, that he'd become her chief of staff, that was not a surprise. I'm not sure I answered the question because I forgot what it was. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, I feel like oh, that were they that there? Was, well, I feel like their rhetoric sort of set the table for a lot of this. Yeah, but I think, you know, I, I was talking to someone else about this recently. I agree, but I think it would be a mistake to think of the Door Brothers as the only actors in these communities. I, I think we, we really tried to use them as like, here is what it looks like. And there you should know that there are hundreds, probably thousands of actors like this on the online sphere, taking advantage of what they they know is the power of really strong emotion, right? I mean, I think this is something that you see on the left and the right, which is that if someone has done something outrageous, people really go after you. And so they know how to use that stuff specifically against Republicans, and they've been trained to do it. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. I don't think that they're the cause of what happened or, or anything like that. But I think that what you have are some folks who saw a real opportunity and took advantage of it. And really, you know, when you kind of step back, it's not about the gun issues necessarily because they don't even want to compromise on gun legislation or anything like that or push an agenda. It really seems to kind of go back to money. And, and kind of continuing this, this kind of thing they've got going nationwide. You know, that's, that's interesting. I think that's a question that we kind of tried to leave open in the podcast because I'm not sure that, well, maybe I've just answered it in the opposite way, right? The question for us was, you know, are they doing this because of money or is there some, what's the motivation here? And I, I don't think, you know, there's no way to answer that without them telling us um, and that's not likely to happen. But I do think, you know, money is certainly a part of it. They, the, this, it, it appears to be how they, they make a living. But another main motivator that I think is real is they're interested in transforming society, which we get into a lot more. But, you know, the, that's why the, this stuff is so appealing to anti-government groups and why you have so much overlap with it, right, is, is attacking government. Right. There's a lot of that um, Christian conservatism and kind of 
handmaid's tale kind of like keeping women subservient. Well, but, but also just... Just Christian conservatism isn't per se kind of radicalism. Right. This is a radical version this is a sect of, of it. a sect. Yeah, that's right. 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 Because because I definitely felt that vibe from how the family you profiled, how even since the 90s and they had these little conventions and, you know, how it, it just, you know, they're still going from the same playbook even today. But because so much of it is now online, it's getting a lot more traction. Exactly. It, it's all the same stuff. We just, there's a new tool that really, really bumps up the effectiveness of all of these topics. And it's happening in plain sight. You know, that's the thing that's funny about this. None of this was was hidden. It's all on totally public Facebook groups for anyone to see. But of course, we too, every person is in their own bubble on Facebook. So why would you ever bump up against this stuff or become aware of it if you weren't already a part of the community? Yeah, and I wasn't aware of it until, you know, I bumped up against it as an elected official. And uh, it, it it was a really interesting experience and one that I, I really wouldn't like to have again, to be quite frank. Yeah. I'm curious, Senator Jordan, if you don't mind me asking, we reported a little bit in there on, you know, the situation with Patrick Parsons in North Carolina. Like, is this stuff legal, what he's doing, raising tens of thousands of dollars in another state without really setting foot there or doing anything? Yeah, I think it probably it depends on the state law or whatever. But my guess is that an aggressive attorney general could put together a pretty good case. I mean, when you when you start to kind of talk about the way this enterprise goes out, it's very much kind of like how criminal enterprises are built and put together. Not to say that this is a criminal enterprise, but just kind of how the web grows and how they're all interconnected. But I think that that's a really good question and maybe one that a really good AG could could take a look at. If we talk about raising money, and that's something that a lot of these extreme gun groups do, is they are fundraising. And you guys reveal that, you know, they're sort of fleecing their fans. I mean... You know, it's kind of like we're reading about the NRA now, obviously being broken apart. And that was a big part of it where, you know, the money people were donating who are just people who like guns and are gun enthusiasts. And, you know, and, and that's great. And they want to be in that organization. But, you know, obviously these people were being taken advantage of. And that's kind of happening with some of these extreme groups, too. But the members seem to be in a lot of denial about that. Yeah, I'm not sure if denial is quite the right word. I mean, I think, you know, there are actors on both the left and the right that people support and want to support and say the things that that are in people's hearts. And, and they love to see that sort of, you know, enthusiasm expressed well on the internet. And so in some ways, like, I was never sure, you know, like, are you maybe folks are comfortable with just paying for the living of this person who's saying all the right things that make them feel pretty good and they believe in. And they certainly have interfered with the passing of, of some gun regulation. So, uh, you know, that that's a plus. And, you know, the difference, of course, with the NRA, which is interesting that you bring up because, you know, the like 
the failures of the NRA were something that that the Door brothers and Patrick Parsons were pushing forever. It was a, a very hot topic for them because the betrayal was sort of solidified around this idea that they're wasting your money on elitist things. And what we heard a lot in excuses or, you know, sort of responses from the doors that they would either make in videos about criticism that they'd heard about the way they operate is that they would be like, you know, we're not driving around in Maseratis or, or, or wearing Armani suits. We're just regular guys. And so I think that there is a bit of a, you know, as long as we're not being ostentatious about our wealth, like there's nothing wrong about what we're doing here. We are talking a lot about gun rights. That's fair point. Yeah, no, I think I think you're exactly right. But but you know, they did they did take advantage of the NRA's fall from grace For and sure. have really oh, yeah. used it to their advantage. Like, let's be clear, if my parents were giving these folks money, I would be concerned. I would express a concern and talk to my parents about it. But I'm not sure that that's what everyone feels. Well, everybody should listen to this podcast. It's called No Compromise, and it is available on anywhere you get your podcasts. Lisa Hagen, you can hear on WABE. Uh, when you're in the building, tell them you want Mara's Music Mix to come back on WABE. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll yeah. do. I'm not cutting that part out. <laughs> uh, <I laughs> Lisa, it's been such a, a pleasure talking to you. And, and you and Chris did such a wonderful job on this pod. I've been recommending. I'm just such a fan. And, you know, um, are you going to, like, do a part two or follow this story? Or what can we expect? No comment. We certainly have an idea for a season two, but that's all I'll say. All right. Well, we'll be waiting. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, y'all. Well, lots to think about there. I mean, it certainly does open your mind. And we will continue to keep our minds open here. You know, we like to end the Voter podcast with something a little bit light and funny. And especially after that. But. <laughs> yes. So Saturday Night Live came out with the first show of 2021 with several Georgia references. I mean, Georgia is white hot, Jen. White hot, like blue hot. So they had this... Like a blue flame. <laughs> so they had this segment called Blue Georgia. And we'll play a little bit of it. Hey, uh, before we eat, uh, I should wash my hands. You know where the men's room is? <laughs> yeah, it's back in 2015. <laughs> we don't have a men's room, but the alt-gender restrooms is just down the way. Oh, you guys have a alt-gender restroom? Uh-oh, Sheriff. I think your cousin thinks we're all crazy Christian types. Oh, no, no, no. I, I never said that. And even if you are, it's fine. I mean, I'm Jewish. Hold on. You're Jewish? Uh, yeah. Well, I hope you know what we do to Jewish folks down here in Georgia. We elect them. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I don't know if you heard, but we got a 33-year-old Jewish senator now. Mazel tov, y'all. <laughs> Whoa, that Osaw fella makes this shiks a blush. <laughs> Miss Crystal. Where am I? So the idea was like Andy Griffith in modern times. What did you think of it? So I thought it was really clever because, you know, when they started, I was like, oh, this is going to be the familiar kind of tropes about the South and how we act. And so that was what was so funny about it, right? How they kind of turned it on its head. 
I thought it really hit the mark from a comedy standpoint. I will say it was odd hearing them talk about people that we know in Georgia. I mean, it's Saturday Night Live. I mean, so that was, I was like, holy camoly. Do you think um, Warnock was upset that he didn't he didn't get a nod, but but Ossoff did? I don't know. I mean, that's kind of an interesting thing. What did you think about? It? I thought it was hilarious. I, I think that um, some people feel that what you said that when there's a, something about the South, it's all the same tropes and the oh my heart and shrimp and grits and how. It's sort of like a negative thing because people don't realize actually how progressive Georgia is and not just Atlanta. When you're looking at Savannah and Columbus and all the Athens and, you know, being, I mean, I, of course, love the food angle. It's like we don't have the grits, but we have gluten-free avocado toast. I mean. Yeah, that was fun. (laughs) That's like amazing. I thought it was great. I did not love the Marjorie Taylor Greene like in the opening segment, even though I thought that was a good bit and you can go back and watch it because again going back to our point before it's giving so much oxygen to so much negativity but blue georgia i thought was terrific i will say that the thing that i i liked kind of the best was the shade that they threw on florida and i think that that has been well earned Yeah, because Florida is really become a lot more of a red state. And I was curious about that. I was actually talking with my mother about that, who's like, you know, she's an NPR liberal and very well informed. But, you know, we're talking about DeSantis in 2022. He's looking pretty good. I mean, which is nuts when you see how he's mismanaged COVID down there. And maybe it's because they don't know because he won't even release public information in terms of the deaths and in terms of the virus. So, but yeah, that just blows my mind. And the Florida Democrats seem to not be doing a great job. I mean, they lost the Senate and they lost like a lot of those down ballot races. And then you have the Latin community, you know, so it's it's you who they vote Republican. They love Trump. Well, look, it's a it's complex, right? Yeah, because it is not kind of this political uh, homogenous kind of approach. I mean, Florida is big, and also to be able to even advertise or run a campaign in Florida is so incredibly expensive. It is not easy. It is not easy to win there. But man. They don't feel swingy very much. No, if anything, I think it's going more red where Georgia is going more blue. And I love all that attention. And whoever runs for governor, whether it's Stacey or if it's Senator Jen Jordan. Which is, that is a no. (laughs) Or if it's Tyler Perry or, you know, while we're talking about pop culture for a second, did you see Tyler Perry got his vaccination? Yes, and I thought that was Great. I had mixed feelings about that. Well, so they're doing it so that people won't have vaccination hesitation. I get it. And trust it. But you're right. I mean, you can at least pick people in the 1A class. I get it. That are high profile. Well, because here's the thing. On the day of the runoffs, he was tweeting out like, I had to fly back because I never got my ballot. And he was like, acting kind of like ignorant to not paying attention. Now, I, listen, I know he's got a lot to do and he's a busy guy and I'm not trying to throw shade. I'm a huge Tyler Perry fan. 
But I just thought, like, really? Like, you're hanging out with Stacey Abrams. You're, like, in the know with everybody. And you're, like, jumping the line for the vaccine. And you don't know how the runoffs work. That's a lot. That's a lot to unpack. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I love you, Tyler Perry. And we would love to have... Well, so maybe it was Medea that got the vaccination. <laughs> you know, maybe they should have done it that way. That actually would have been a real opportunity. That's a good idea. Well, on that note, we'll send that to his PR people at Tyler Perry Studios and see how that goes. Listen, you can always reach out to us via email at voteherpodcast at gmail.com and podcast vote on Twitter, at Mara Davis, at Senator Jen. Thanks, Christina Laringer, for editing and Terminus Records for our music. Um, we'll keep going. You know, I'll keep I'll keep stalking Senator Jen every week. I'm like, do you want to record? Do you want to record? Do you want to yeah. record? Yeah, and, and, and I really appreciate everybody kind of hanging with us. Look, you get into a completely different mode during session. So I'm having to like, you know, how do you even talk about politics when you're like in the middle of kind of session. I get Um, it. But I do think it's important for us to talk about what's going on. All right. Well, we learned a lot. We listened and subscribed and we need you to do the same. Leave us a comment and we will talk to you next time. 